Values and Racism in American Immigration Views, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. The abrupt shift in immigration and refugee policies from the Trump to the Biden administration continues Americans' increasing division, especially on policy at the southern border. Are public views rooted in anti-Latino racism or a broader American ethos? They may now be fused too much to disentangle. Anti-immigration opinions combine prejudices and values because Latinos are stereotyped as inconsistent with assimilation and legality. This week, I talked to Mark Ramirez of Arizona State University about his Cambridge book with David Peterson, Ignored Racism, White Animus Towards Latinos. He finds that anti-Latino attitudes are pervasive in the United States because Latinos are stereotyped as not living up to American values. These combined attitudes predict policy opinions and helped pave the way for Donald Trump. I also talked to Matthew Wright of the University of British Columbia about his new Cambridge book with Morris Levy, Immigration and the American Ethos. He finds Americans' mixed immigration attitudes are built on norms of assimilation and the rule of law. By providing counter-stereotypical or equalizing information across immigrant groups, we can reduce prejudice's role in opinions. Ramirez finds that anti-Latino racism matters a lot for American politics, for immigration, and beyond. The major takeaway is that there exists a unique belief system in the minds of some Americans that we like to call Latino racism, ethnicism. It's racism in that it's partly based on the misperception of Latinos as a non-white racial outgroup. So there's an effective component to it and ethnicism in that it also targets cultural and ethnic based behaviors that people associate with Latinos. So there's a strong cognitive component to this belief system too. Um, It's basically a belief that Latinos fail to adhere to Anglo-American norms. That is that they cannot, they cannot or they do not act in ways that are preferable to, to some white Americans and that their race and ethnicity, which are often compl- conflated by people, and, and even Latinos, sometimes often we conflate our race and ethnicity too. If you look at the, the Pew studies. But, but these things kind of permanently regulate uh, Latinos as outsiders for some Americans who hold this belief. And people see Latinos as outsiders who lack agency or a willingness to act in some prototypical American fashion, which usually means white American. And so not all Americans subscribe to this belief, but, but some do. And for those that do subscribe to this belief, this Latino racism, ethnicism has fairly important consequences for American politics. You know, we typically think that anti-Latino beliefs play some role in public preferences on debates like immigration. And we find support for that in the book, but we also find support that anti-Latino beliefs and specifically this Latino racism, ethnicism relates to people's preferences on policies ranging from should police wear body cameras to issues like punitive sentencing and voting rights. Um, It's also become an important factor in how people choose elected officials. So many of the important issues being debated at the moment are partly rooted in how people perceive the Latino population. Immigration is the most visible of the debate, of these debates, but our book kind of shows that it's not the only one. And I think that's the, the big takeaway is sort of the broader consequences of beliefs about Latinos for policies beyond immigration. Wright finds that Americans have mixed attitudes about immigration and immigrants. First thing is that Americans bring a lot more nuance to their attitudes about immigration than most people would appreciate. There's a lot of people are pro-immigrant in some ways and anti-immigrant in others. It doesn't all just boil down to us versus them or insiders and outsiders. The second thing was a lot of this nuance is explained by people's understandings of the values that they think define their political community. 
So in short, our story is, you know, that people have a certain way of thinking about what they think immigrants owe America and what America owes them in return, and that that ends up guiding a lot of their thinking. Third thing is that a lot of the patterns and prejudices that we see in attitudes about immigration are actually better explained by these values that we reference than they are by the common assumption that it's sort of deeply rooted racism and, and white supremacy and things of that kind. And norms and values have important implications for immigration views. When we speak about norms to do with assimilation, we mean the rules that people think define the political community. These can be formal rules or norms, like if somebody thinks that immigrants ought to immigrate legally and that, you know, illegal immigrants lack legitimacy. It can also be informal beliefs about assimilation, right? That like immigrants ought to learn English when they get here um, and, and things of that kind. We also talk about egalitarianism as a value that Americans bring to bear quite sharply on immigration attitudes. And we, we sort of bring in humanitarianism as another sort of consideration. Humanitarianism usually softens the negative judgments that people make based on values. That's usually its role. The values themselves, all the things I've mentioned are, if not universal, they're endorsed by large majorities of, Ameri of uh, Americans. Some of that depends on measurement, right? Like, so how are you going to measure norms about formal assimilation, right? Or how are you going to measure egalitarianism? But it'd be pretty hard to find a sample of Americans that didn't support, for example, the importance of obeying laws or uh, speaking English to get by or, or things like that, helping people in need. However you ask the question, you're going to find broad support for all of these kinds of things. What they boil down to essentially is just simple rules that people apply either consciously or, or, or subconsciously when they make decisions about whether or not to support a policy or whether or not a particular immigrant or a group of immigrants deserves to benefit from a policy. So, you know, it's, it's a kind of a, a, a heuristic or a snap judgment based on a, a well-ingrained rule. In most cases, the kinds of values we talk about are double-edged, which is to say that they might lead people to be inclusive in some uh, contexts and exclusive in others. There's not like a it's not that, you know, thinking about values pushes people in one direction all the time, right? It, it, can, it can work both ways. The exception is humanitarianism, which is pretty much always sort of in our story construed as a pro-immigrant factor. Ramirez and Peterson created a new scale to address problems with prior measures of Latino stereotypes. We started the development of the scale by examining focus group data, and this led us to the formulation of these survey questions that we felt captured the most commonly expressed beliefs about Latinos. And then from there, we parsed down a list of different questions to the four that are in the book that seemed to capture the most dominant dimensions of this belief system, as well as had the best measurement properties from a psychometric perspective. And so one of the questions is the Irish, Italians, Jews, and many other ethnic groups immigrated to the United States legally. Latinos and Hispanics should do the same without any special favors. And so this captures a comment that we saw pretty frequently in the focus group data that people would reference sort of their ancestors and how their, uh, you know, ancestors from these other ethnic groups migrated to the United States legally, how they came through Ellis Island and did everything right and how Latinos should do the same. You know, another question is Latinos and Hispanics would be more welcomed in the United States if they would try harder to learn English and adopt U.S. customs like past immigrant groups are done. This really gets at sort of the, the lack of assimilation belief and particularly the lack of, of trying to learn English, which seems really off-putting to a lot of whites in the focus group data. Other questions capture the, the belief in Latino criminality and the belief of Latino agency that Latinos choose these paths as opposed to being constrained into some of these paths by discriminatory institutions. 
you know, the statements at all as a whole were designed to capture the most common beliefs expressed by the focus groups uh, that tended to mirror the historical depictions that we saw of Latinos. And we really wanted to meet the public where they are rather than impose sort of our own ideas about what these belief systems entail. And of course, what you get from the measures is that there is this conflation between anti-Latino sentiment with different behaviors. But that's what we think is the nature of the belief system in the population. It doesn't exist or it rarely exists in a pure biological racism form or a pure negative affect form. People express their beliefs about Latinos in language that references various behaviors. And our measurement re reflects that. I think equally important are some of the beliefs that we did not include in the measure. Um, we didn't find too many focus group participants discussing Latinos as a burden on social welfare systems or in terms of job competition. Um, those comments were there, but just not very frequently. And when we included items like that, in, in the measure, they didn't coalesce with these other questions either. He says somewhat pervasive beliefs expect Latino criminality and lack of assimilation. The most common anti-Latino attitudes tend to conflate anti-Latino sentiment or affect with cognitive beliefs about Latino behavior. These beliefs that uh, Latinos fail to immigrate properly, that Latinos prefer to remain insulated in their own communities, which is often expressed as an aversion to Spanish language use, Beliefs about Latino criminality, that Latinos are drug dealers and gang members and prone to criminal behavior. And this also ties into the idea of undocumented migration, uh, migrants being illegal, as well as things like you know, Latinos using fake documents to secure jobs or fake driver's license. Um, we see a lot of that in, in how people uh, talk about Latino criminality. And then there's a widespread belief that Latinos are willing agents of all of this, that their behaviors in place in American society has very little to do with institutions and discrimination. Um, the central theme of all these different components is that Latinos are unable or unwilling to assimilate into Anglo-American norms in society, that they are alien outsiders who, by their own accord, don't want to fit in. So for people who hold this belief, the natural response is to shut Latinos out of social, political, and economic systems. We find that these beliefs tend to be fairly per pervasive. Our focus group analysis shows that these themes, these beliefs manifest themselves in conversations about Latinos, in, in conversations that have nothing to do with politics. So in how people describe Latinos they encounter at Walmart or in a downtown neighborhood, they're, they're talking about Latinos in the way that that we connect to Latino racism, ethnicism. In our survey data, we find that between 37 and 58% of Americans hold this belief. And it's hard to tell, you know, what in this range of these estimates is more or less accurate, which are due to different time periods in which we conducted the study, because we conducted the study from 2014, I think that 2016, 2018 was our last survey. So it's hard to tell which of these estimates are due to, to the differences of these estimates, if they're due to different time periods, if they're due to different sampling frames or different choices in the questions we used for the different surveys. But even the lower bound estimate of 37% shows that more Americans hold this belief than they do the typical measures of anti-Latino um, sentiment, such as the stereotype measures or the social distance measures. So it tends to be, you know, a pretty pervasive, but not you know, I don't think a majority of Americans hold this belief uh, fairly strongly. But even if these attitudes are linked in real life, Wright and Levy use survey experiments to break things apart. The strength of survey experiments is that they allow us to make convincing causal arguments. And, you know, in particular, that they allow us to, to discriminate between competing explanations for some 
underlying pattern. You know, a pretty easy example, one that we've been talking about is whether or not like law and order rhetoric, if it comes out of um, some somebody who's running for office should be taken at face value or whether it's simply a cloak that allows people to mask how, um, you know, that they're essentially anti-Latino or white supremacist or whatever. And they're, they're just sort of putting it behind a more socially acceptable guise. So a lot of the experiments that we designed, including conjoints and vignettes and all that kind of stuff are, are aimed exactly at sort of disentangling those things. So we usually what, what we want to do is we want to separate the influences of race and ethnicity on the one hand and sort of racial identity to the extent that we can and separate that from the sort of elements of context that we think are more closely tied to values. And to the degree that one's persuaded by our, our experimental designs, then you can actually tell a pretty good story about that. The downside is, you know, as you're sort of suggesting, is that we have a pretty limited view from experiment, survey experiments onto actual behavior. There is a certain artificiality in breaking things apart that are in real life sort of out there in the world tied together. That said, you know, to the degree that, I mean, there's a couple of things, right? One is that this is this is the state of the art in the discipline. When we when we look at political psychology, I mean, the the, the state of the art is experiments, and and people have made the case for whatever their view is of immigration policy using surveys and using experiments for years and years. So we're no different in that respect. We're just you know thinking about things maybe a little bit differently. The other thing is, to the extent that real life, um, you know, events in real life or the way elections unfold or whatever seems to mimic the things that our experiments are teasing out that can sort of increase our confidence that they're telling us something real. So outside of the book, Morris and I have talked a lot about the relationship between public opinion writ large and immigration policy, and among other things, the failure of immigration reform, sort of comprehensive immigration reform. And a lot of that, you know, is part of a story that's consistent with, you know, value stakes. And so it's, you can show that in a little survey experiment and then look out in the real world and say, well, this is also happening at the same time, and it's all sort of consistent to the same story, then that sort of gives us a little bit of added confidence. Wright says the scales combine ideology and racial cues that can be separated. Not just this particular variant of, of the symbolic racism version, or like a Latino-specific version, but all sort of symbolic racism scales have ideological content by design, right? They're sort of judgments that, you know, as you say, you know, a particular ethnic group is not living up to whatever values everyone else has or should have. I don't think anybody would disagree, including us, that, you know, endorsing a, a series of views tied to symbolic racism against Latinos, like, you know, for example, saying that Latinos haven't worked as hard to assimilate or succeed as, you know, Irish or Italian or previous immigrant groups did. You know, the idea that agreeing with that would be correlated with support for Trump, you know, and, you know, restrictive immigration policy or even support for Republicans. I mean, we don't disagree with that. But the question is, and, and you're right, I mean, it all kinds of goes together out in the, in, in the discourse. But again, the question is whether or not it's the values that are driving these attitudes or whether or not it's the racism. So in the original sort of Sears and Sears Kinder version of this, right, I mean, symbolic racism was essentially racism with a, with a prettier face. And that's one view, of, that's one way of interpreting these items, but it's not the only way to interpret these items. There are, there are different ways. Another way of interpreting these items is that really it's the ideology that's doing most of the work and not the sort of racial cue. And so it's important to understand, to us anyway, it's important for us to understand the difference of what's actually doing the work. And so, you know, our argument uh, in the book, whenever we, whenever we touch on this, is that the ideological content of these items is really the key driver. And, and the evidence for us is, uh, well, two things, right? One is that the values seem to matter in isolation, either when you control for race in an experiment or you leave it out, you standardize it or whatever, you, you eliminate the, the influence of race by design. The values matter in and of themselves. So, you know, 
egalitarianism, proceduralism, legalism, all, all the stuff we talk about. The other thing is that people seem to apply values considerations the way we define them similarly to, uh, you know, onto Latinos as they do to other groups of hypothetical immigrants, whites, Europeans, you know, uh, Chinese, what have you. And so the inference from that is, well, if, if symbolic racism is really about sort of, you know, singling out an ethnic group for not living up to some, some code that we've imposed on it, some hypothetical code that we've imposed on everyone, well, then you would expect to see people use those values differentially against that, you know, against that ethnic group. And, and we don't see any of that in the data that we look at. So for us, I mean, I, I, it's true that, you know, you might want to just look at a symbolic race, a resentment scale and, and walk away and say, well, that's just what that's what discourse is. Right. So, you know, and to the degree that people endorsing these views are also anti-immigrant. Well, you know, that's all she wrote. Right. But it's also I mean, for us, it's more it's as or more important to sort of figure out, well, what, what's what's really driving this? Right. What's the relationship? Is it really because people are deep down racist against Latinos or is it really because they have a particular set of values that they apply? And, and so we, we kind of lean in the latter direction. But Ramirez says the new scale draws from commonalities in anti-Black and anti-Latino attitudes, but is different from symbolic racism. There are lots of similarities between the experiences of Blacks and Latinos. Both were lynched at high rates. Both experienced segregated schools. You know, there were Mexican schools in Southern California, segregated public facilities. And the expressions of animus, as well as the beliefs that anchor those expressions, you know, I think are rooted in a natural tendency of people to engage in self-categorization, which leads to in-group favoritism and out-group hostility. So whenever we look at animus towards different racial ethnic groups, I think there is a commonality. And often those narratives, you know, I think narratives of, say, Latinos being aggressive, Latino criminality, you know, there's also that narrative of Black Americans being aggressive and Black criminality. So, so there are definitely, you know, common roots. But perhaps surprisingly um, is I don't see a strong connection between racial resentment and the concept of Latino racism, ethnicism, theoretically. First, we don't root our argument in any sense that Latino racism, ethnicism is a new or covert form of animus, which is a big part of the racial resentment literature. We find traces of it throughout history, and you know I think it's fairly explicit in what it is. When I hear someone say Latinos should speak English, to me, that's a clear expression of a cultural or ethnic preference, which we think about in terms of ethnicism. So we don't have that aspect to our argument at the theoretical level. Now, that could just be perspective in that I'm writing and living in a time where we recognize different racial tropes and language in a different light than the authors of the racial resentment measure and similar scales. But we also find the content is a bit different. It's not just about negative affect hidden in the language of individualism or equality. It's about a lack of assimilation and fitting in. Empirically, we end up with very similar worded measures for two reasons. First, and this is just what came out of the focus group data, and we document some of that in the book. And so when we you know, heard people, read about people who were talking about Latino immigration in relation to the immigration of these other groups, you know, the racial resentment scale question that's very similar on, on this just naturally kind of popped into our mind of, wow, this is very similar to this. And so it was a natural place for us to, to sort of start building the measure. And once we did that, I think it was, you know, I think I stuck to modifying the content of some of the other racial resentment questions because I'm a bit risk averse in research. I like to stick to things that are already familiar to people. And it also allowed us to sort of think about the criticisms. We, we, we kind of knew what the criticisms of the racial resentment scale have been over the years. 
And so we're able to sort of try to address some of those things head on, um, which made the process, I think, a little easier for us. And so, you know, and, and then the third reason, you know, I, I talk about being risk averse, you know, the racial resentment scale for all of its criticism, it's still the predominant measure of racial prejudice used in a lot of research. So for good or bad, there's a lot of value in that measure for scholars. And so for us, it seemed like a safe leap to sort of modify those questions with the content that we were discovering um, rather than try to come up with something completely new. Uh, the two scales are correlated pretty highly. I think it's like 0.6 in the 2014 CCS data. And they do actually form a common latent factor that is distinct from other measures like stereotypes, ethnocentrism. Unfortunately, we don't really have data that compares both scales with all their items. I think we have in 2014, a two item racial resentment scale and four items of the Latino racism, ethnicism scale. And, and I think that's the best we have in, in the data we collected. Despite the similarities, we do find that they relate to different political outcomes in theoretically predictable ways. And we think that's, that's pretty important. We also conducted a lot of discriminant validity tests that don't get a lot of attention in the book, but I think are really important as well. Latino racism, ethnicism doesn't correlate with things like the size and scope of government policies, which suggests our measure isn't simply a confound for ideological principles, you know, left-right debates. It doesn't pick up opposition or doesn't correlate with opposition to gay rights or affirmative action. So that suggests it's not simply a proxy for ethnocentrism or outgroup hostility. And it's not merely a substitute for racial resentment, which we know predicts things like support for policies such as African American uh, affirmative action. So those small changes in content in the question wording actually do matter for, for prediction um, or correlation. Their new explanation for immigration attitudes integrates these anti-Latino beliefs. The existing explanations tend to focus on different variations of realistic group conflict theory, um, people coming into contact with immigrants in various ways, cultural preferences that people just simply oppose the, the the, the culture and, and customs of Latinos. And there is, you know, a literature that uh, of racial animus and, and negative affect towards Latinos, typically measured with the, you know, 100-point thermometer ANES scale. You know, do you feel warm or cold towards Latinos? And we don't have any issues with any of these theories. We just thought that maybe they were sort of underestimating the effect of, of, white animus towards Latinos, and that if we had a measure that actually captured how how white Americans actually think about Latinos, what that belief system is, then we would get a, a better sense of, of how important it is in immigration policy preferences. And we do find that it does tend to be more important than sort of negative stereotypes, different measures of realistic group conflict theory, such as like percentage county change of the Latino population or you know, in some models that I don't think were reported in the book, we use the segregation index to see if, you know, the, the, the mixture of white versus Latinos in different neighborhoods or different counties was having an effect. Um, we didn't find any indication that economic perceptions were shaping immigration policy preferences, which is another theory about, you know, immigrants and Latino immigrants threatening American jobs, um, sort of that line of research. Ramirez sees benefits to conflating broad views and anti-Latino attitudes. We are replicating the debates on symbolic racism for good or bad in, in our research. But, I, you know, for a long time, I, I, I sort of felt like I was, I was very much in the camp of trying to parse things out. And I think I came around the other direction 
Um, partly just seeing, you know, how much utility other people are getting from symbolic racism and racial resentment scales and, and how useful it is in, in different contexts. You know, and I, and I think if this is the way from from our perspective, if this is the way that people are talking about Latinos, if this is the way that they're commonly expressing it, then it goes back to the comment I made earlier of trying to meet people where they're at. You know, but I do think that there are probably research questions where you will want to parse these things out and look at them, the, the, the individual components. But, it, it, you know, measurement of racial attitudes is really hard. You're either sort of conflating things like we are or you are probably underestimating and suffering social desirability bias issues. So it's kind of take your pick of, of, of what you, what you want to, what's your poison. He says you can change people's beliefs about particular people, but that might not change embedded stereotypes. We did find, I mean, first we did find evidence that sort of cultural preferences do matter. The degree that Latinos assimilate or don't assimilate it, it does matter, but it doesn't take away the role of racism in, in our study. In terms of providing sort of counter-stereotypical information or different equalizing information, you know, I think those things matter, you know, at least in, in single-shot experiments, right, in, in short-term thinking. And if, I mean, looking at the broader literature on, on sort of counter-stereotypical information, we do see things like, you know, people that watched the, the Cosby show in the 80s you know, had more f friendlier beliefs about black families immediately after watching that show. My reading of that literature is that it tends to be pretty contained, right? So your beliefs about the Huxtables as a family might have changed from watching the Cosby shows, but your overall beliefs about blacks in general didn't really change. And that sort of counter stereotypical information might have an immediate effect and an effect usually on sort of the person that's being depicted, but doesn't necessarily change the broader stereotype, you know, outside of that experimental context. And I think this is just the shortcoming of the experimental studies that we usually run, the stuff that I usually do, which are just like these single shot experiments within a survey or our lab, right? And so I don't, I don't really know, you know, how convinced I am that counter stereotypical information can really reduce racism in the long run. I, you know, I think we need, you know, better studies, more field experiments that, that, that test the long range effects to, to, to really get at that. So I'm kind of just, I think, undecided at this point. Wright says prejudice is clear, but it may be due to misperception rather than animus. It really depends on what we want to say is racism. So certainly, you know, if you simply believe stereotypes like this, negative, you know, a negative representation of a group, say that, you know, Latinos are lazy or whatever, one could quite reasonably construe that as anti-Latino racism full stop, right, from a certain point of view. And I don't really have anything to dispute that, right? I mean, because it's a sort of, it's a, it's a definitional or a conceptual issue, right? If, if that's racism, fine, so be it. What we're more interested in is, you know, what's underlying that prejudice, right? Is that prejudice tied to some kind of real animus to, a, to, to an ethnic group? Or is it driven by assumptions about that group's behavior and whether or not that group is, is supposedly in violation of, of a norm? So if it's the latter, then it's still prejudice in the big picture sense, right? You don't want necessarily a whole lot of Americans going around with, with the, the sort of false assumption that Latinos are lazier than whites, obviously. But it's probably not racism in the sense that it's driven by the desire to keep Latinos subordinate to whites or to maintain white supremacy or any of those things that are often attributed to, you know, native born American, white, you know, white Americans preferences. 
Americans still make distinctions based on legality. It's a strong and meaningful distinction uh, in the American context. Uh, and essentially, unsurprisingly, it, it always tends to favor, you know, uh, legal immigrants over illegal ones. So people always, when offered the when offered anything like a sort of, you know, pound for pound comparison, they'll, they'll always favor the legal immigrant over the, the uh, undocumented immigrant. And mainly, I mean, I, I don't think anybody disagrees that at the mass level that this is a, a thing that we, we have to reckon with. I think the, the sort of disagreement is about why. And so people on the, uh, you know, people on the, other, on, the, on the other side of the debate from where we are tend to sort of say that this is because people, when they think about illegal immigrants, they are particularly attuned to thinking about Latinos and, and they have this underlying animus towards Latinos. And as a result, they are going to be especially hostile towards illegal immigration because of uh, stereotyping and in, in enforcing a stereotype. Our story is a little bit different. We tend to think that that the legal illegal distinction matters in and of itself, and that you know illegal immigrants are, are sort of disfavored over legal ones precisely because they violated a a widely held norm tied to formal assimilation. And Americans are more pro-immigration in specific terms than general terms. I don't think there are huge differences in the aggregate between support for a family reunification policy versus a skills-based policy versus refugees. They all tend to be more, our, our story is that they tend, they all tend to be more popular than just talking about immigration in the abstract. And the reason for that is that they all uh, sort of cue things that people care about in, in this sort of values language that we've been talking about. So, so if you talk about reuniting families, then that sort of makes people feel like it's it's sort of the right thing to do on humanitarian grounds. Or if you talk about skills-based immigration, again, if, if the contrast is just talking about should we have more or fewer immigrants, if you say instead that, you know, well, we, we need, what do you think about admitting immigrants that American employers say they need, uh, or some argument like that, then that cues considerations about work ethic and and, and, and those sorts of things. Refugees too, it's, it's a similar case, right, where you could say, you know, do you prefer, would you rather have more or fewer immigrants? That's one thing. But then if you add the sort of proviso that you're accepting people because they're being persecuted in their home country, or they are, um, you know, they're at the, the, the whim of a, a dictator, you know, or something like that, that cues a lot of humanitarian sentiment, which makes people, people more likely to want to accept them. Wright says stereotypes are important because they implicate values. Stereotypes are deeply important to our story and to, to most, you know, most stories in the literature. Uh, so essentially, I mean, it's not our innovation to sort of talk about how Latinos are commonly, and it's been known for a long time, they're commonly stereotyped as lazy. In a more general sense, they're stereotyped as being less willing to assimilate culturally. We don't use the word culture so much. We use functional assimilation as a kind of a slightly more neutral sounding word. But, you know, the idea is that Latino, Latinos don't work as hard. They don't want to learn English. Often they're stereotyped to be in the country illegally. So all of these stereotypes are out there. They interact with values in our story because to the degree that they're believed, all of them violate, from the standpoint of you know most Americans anyway, they violate some norm of fairness or, or assimilation. So if you think, for example, that Latinos are more likely to violate some norm that's important to you, you're less likely to favor a policy that you understand would benefit them. So the good news is, so, so you know, the, stereotype, the stereotypes are out there, right? The good news is that, you know, if you counter the stereotypes with reassuring information, right, or countering information, people seem to be willing, in our studies at least, to update their policy preferences accordingly. So if you present them with, you know, a Hispanic immigrant who speaks English and has a job, 
this will people will respond to that by sort of being less hostile to that you know to that person getting some kind of a benefit like a pathway to citizenship for example so you know that's important to us because not because it means that the 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 stereotype isn't there right but that means that it's sort of malleable which is a sign it's it's responsive to information which is evidence to us that it's not sort of rooted in some kind of deeply rooted dislike of latinos per se which would be a very different story if people didn't respond when you sort of corrected them and they maintained their sort of hostility towards that group or that individual or whatever, that would be a kind of a, that would be a, something more consistent with what we view as sort of like standard racism. They both agree that political context is key. Ramirez says their measure was important in understanding voting for Trump. We find that they're a strong part of the rise of Donald Trump when we compared his support, you know, pre-election as well as post-election vote choice in comparison with other sort of racial attitudes, beliefs about, say, Muslim Americans. It was really the, these beliefs about Latinos, uh, this Latino racism ethicism that that we found correlated with with his support much more than much more than the other beliefs. And I think that's it's partly, in my sense, you know, he didn't he didn't play that up as much in 2020. And so I suspect that it, it might have, you know, hurt his support in some ways. But he does see prospects for change with new leaders. Our book is really observational and the conclusions are, are really dependent on a lot of correlations. And even when we do run experiments, those turn to, turn, turn to sort of correlational analysis because we never make an attempt to, to sort of manipulate Latino racism, ethnicism. And so... I mean, on one hand, it seems safe to say that given the historical stickiness of Latino racism, ethnicism, it's likely that these things, that these beliefs remain sort of in the backdrop of people's minds and sort of the common narratives of Latinos. But whether or not they're made salient really depends on the information environment. And when we see information environments that tend to be, you know, maybe adversely, overly harsh towards Latinos, then people tend to back away. And there's maybe this sense of, of humanity that, that sort of overcomes these beliefs. But then when we're in a period like I think today, where we're starting to see sort of a, a crisis or build up at the border, uh, the inability to sort of process, you know, the immigrants that are coming through, you know, this can be turned by anti-immigrant proponents. In a, in a very negative way, right? In a, in a way that leads to sort of fear and moral panics that could increase beliefs in these in Latino racism, ethnicism. Wright says politicians can mobilize anti-immigrant sentiment or values. I could imagine a world where either a sort of moderate Republican politician comes back using values-based language, but isn't such a, a sort of, doesn't have the same sort of, you know, baggage attached as Trump. I guess, I guess the way I would think about it is, that one way of imagining the politics of immigration is that political elites and would-be political elites see some kind of deep resentment in the in the in the population, and they use that to catapult themselves to office. I think that's a pretty common view of, of Trump, for example, right? But another view is, well, they are the entrepreneurs, right? It's not necessarily the case that you know there's this seething anti-immigrant sentiment, but a lot of it has to do with sort of political entrepreneurship. Now, again, joining you in the spirit of nihilism, I mean, I'm not I'm not exactly it's hard to imagine at this juncture, right, a point where, you know, we all just put that behind us. But that's not, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the right set of politicians in the right debate couldn't do that. And certainly that that I think the mass public would respond favorably to it. Trump took upfront racism to a new level, but that doesn't mean it was the best way. 
from the start, I think Trump used rhetoric about immigrants and immigration. I mean, on the one hand, this is stuff that's been part of the Republican playbook for decades, right? I mean, we, we, we've known this, that since, you know, the origins of the Southern strategy, you know, Republicans have spoken, especially Republicans have spoken about law and order as a way to sort of mask some of the more, the uglier stuff, right? And Trump kind of dispensed with the, the mask, right? And he was like, okay, well, law and order and also, you know, um, you know all, all, the, all the negative language about uh, Latinos and Muslims and so on. So, so for sure, that's true. As I've said, like the reason why that rhetoric works is that it can, you know, when you talk, when a, when somebody talks about law and order, you know, especially a Republican talks about law and order, it resonates both with the more explicitly racist elements of that party's base, but also with people who care about law and order as, and, you know, but aren't especially racist in their own outlook. And so, you know, Trump did that more outspokenly than any other previous major party presidential candidate, without a doubt. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that he really needed to do that. And I'm not really sure that he wouldn't, he may have actually done better both in 2016 and 2020 if he tamped it down a bit. I mean, I don't know if that's the case, but on the other hand, I don't think it's self-evident that on balance, his explicitly racist rhetoric sort of helped him, right? I mean, conceivably, a less outwardly bigoted Trump may not have fired up his base quite as much. But on the other hand, he may not have alienated, he may have alienated far fewer minorities and college educated whites and suburbanites and all these other groups that kind of, you know, were against him to begin with and then swung more against him in 2020. In fact, immigration opinions are liberalizing, in part due to values. Our trend data is not perfect because we only really started asking a lot of anti-immigrant or a lot of immigration policy questions in the 90s. Before that, you had a sort of a trend item on on lend uh, on desired level of immigration that went back to like 1965, but virtually nothing else. And, you know, Gallup would ask it every once in a while. Essentially, you know, yeah, there's been a lot of evidence coming out pointing to the American public turning on the whole somewhat in a more sort of pro-immigrant direction over the years. Uh, I think part of it is a reaction to Trump, uh, Trump, like a backlash to the backlash, but it's been going on longer than that. I mean, I, and I think that, you know, on the one hand, like it's fair to say that the kinds of values that we talk about uh, in, in our book have been embedded in American political culture for a long time. But in the near, in the more recent past, right, we have, we're starting to put together evidence that shows that you know, most of this shift in the liberalizing direction has been among Democrats and that essentially Democrats have more than others, but, you know, especially Democrats have taken on more egalitarian views in the years since 2012. So well before Trump. Uh, but if you look back at the American national election studies and all these questions on not just on immigration, but on other issues as well, race issues and whatever, as you're mentioning, you know, d Democrats especially are moving in a liberalizing or in a more liberal direction. The other thing to, 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 that we've noticed is the strength of the correlation between the sort of standard ANES and American National Election Study egalitarianism measure and immigration policy attitudes has, has grown substantially. It went it, it, between 2012 and 2016, which is you know into the era where Trump was president. And, you know, we'll see if this persists into into 2020. But, you know, we're seeing evidence that, you know, the, let's just say that, you know, it certainly seems to be the case that egalitarianism is one of the values that we highlight has become a lot more closely associated with immigration attitudes than it was before. And it may continue to go in that direction. Some of it, I think, I, I think it's probably the case that some amount of, of this movement is thermostatic in the sort of big picture sense. There was a kind of a, an era of, of strong hostility and immigration and especially illegal immigration, again, minding the, the sort of imperfect, uh, imperfect measures that we had back, the, uh, back then. But in, in the 90s, that was basically the peak of sort of, you know, welfare reform and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and you know, probably post, you know, post 9-11, there was some, some apprehension. But, you know, in the past... 10, 15 years has been this very slow, slow sort of move back towards a pro-immigrant you know, pro orientation. I don't know when it ends. I don't know if it keeps going on forever. Somehow I doubt it. 
but certainly, I mean, it, it does seem to be the case that that more of this is being driven by by you know as as the population becomes more egalitarian in a broad sense, then we're going to see more pro-immigrant views, um, out, you know, carrying the day. And the other, the only thing I would add to that essentially is that like it's not necessarily the case that racial attitudes or anti-Latino sentiment or whatever is less important than it used to be. It's it's sort of roughly this. It's consistently important over the years, but but the role of values seems to have grown um, noticeably. They also agree that the combination of views might not just explain white attitudes. Wright says values matter across racial lines. To be sure, let's start with a proviso, right, that most Latinos still favor Democrats. And as we all know, Latinos are a heterogeneous group. And so I don't want to be, you know, accused of trying to like overgeneralize or, or sort of like, you know, paint the wrong picture. I, I, we, we understand that, right? Now, on the other hand, a lot of the talk, as you're sort of saying, after, especially after 2020, was about marginal shifts among Latinos and, and Blacks because these shifts really matter when it comes to winning close elections. So, you know, and what's been telling in a lot of this commentary has been all the values language that we've seen ascribed to Latinos aggregate defection to Trump, however you want to characterize it. So, you know, Cubans and Venezuelans, for example, right, are, are, are said to be allergic to socialism or we've also heard a lot of talk that, you know, these kinds of groups have fears about crime and disorder um, and, and such, and that these have sort of increased wariness about Democrats and Democrats' putative willingness to defund the police, right? I'm, I'm sort of weakly paraphrasing, I think, David Shore's argument, right, basically. But, but like this storyline is fully compatible with the idea that certain kinds of bedrock values matter across racial lines and that, you know, there's nothing... We're not we're not setting out to explain whites' attitudes, right? We're setting out to explain Americans' attitudes. We argue in the book, albeit sort of based on fairly limited data, uh, that there's no reason to believe that that blacks and Latinos aren't using these same sorts of considerations to judge immigrants and immigration. And Ramirez says some racial minorities might also hold similar attitudes. We didn't measure, you know, do any systematic measurement of, of Latinos with this scale, but I, I would imagine it's pretty likely that many Latinos do endorse this. And we do see this historically, uh, you know, for instance, in the 1950s, LULAC, which is this, you know, pro-Latino advocacy organization, you know, they're very much, you know, involved in this separation of who's a good, proper immigrant and who's the bad you know, improper immigrant. And they, they, they sort of engaged in this differentiation of, of, you know, we're here as Latino immigrants who migrated the correct way and we deserve to be here and we deserve to be part of, you know, white Anglo American society. And these new immigrants don't deserve that they're, they're doing it all wrong. And so, you know, we definitely see that historically. And I think we see that today with, with many Latinos, uh, you know, in their support for Trump and their support for harsher immigration policies, you know, and part of this is a desire to become, uh, you know, part of the white in-group, the white dominant in-group. And, and so, you know, that, that's, that's pretty natural. I think you see it, you know, a lot of times in, in different uh, psych experiments of in-group, out-group dynamics, but, but also historically. So where do we go from here? Wright is moving to think about how leaders mobilize latent values and link them to policy. I think both things happen. It's hard to know, you know, who's the leader and who's the follower. I tend to think, I mean, Morris and I have talked about this some, and I'm probably not going to represent his position in all this as much as I, you know, as well as I could. 
But generally speaking, I think we agree that this is kind of a leader driven, you know, a leader driven thing. I, I think that, you know, the values that people have are kind of latent in people's minds and a lot of whether and how they get mobilized and linked to sort of various immigration policy controversies is, is precisely an elite rhetoric. People don't necessarily, they, they don't, ne- and I, I, I don't think that's, by the way, I don't think that's an uncommon view in any of the literature on, on immigration attitudes, right? There's always kind of like this notion that somebody, somebody at the elite level or in the media or whatever has to kind of package something for you, right? Like they'll package a negative stereotype with a sort of racial association and then people will take that, you know, and, and that will become part of their thinking. I, I think the same is true for values. You know, people consensually value, you know, egalitarianism. They think it's important to obey the law, or at least they tell you that in surveys. You know, they think it's good to help people who are in need. They, they think all of these things, right? And they, they think them, these aren't things that they need to be told to think, but they need to be told how to link those things to the immigration policy, you know, controversies of the day. Now in Canada, right, is also thinking the values may not be American specific. Americans and Canadians tend not to differ too much on basic values orientations, at least when it comes to immigration. They do more in other places. Canadians tend in the abstract to favor multiculturalism a little bit more than so-called assimilation in the abstract. But when the rubber meets the road, when you give them concrete situations, concrete immigrant groups and whatever, it's actually striking how similar they are in terms of what they'll accept and, and what they won't. So an open question for us is you know how much of the you know how much of the values so-called that go into U.S. public opinion are as you say intrinsically American, which is to say politically constructed over over decades and, and even centuries, and how much of it is sort of widespread even universal, right? So a good example of that is something like Americans' obsession with procedural legalism, which is one of the things we talk about a lot in the book as a foundation for attitudes about illegal immigration. Now this is something that goes back to Tocqueville, right? At least that that you know Americans are these litigious people, you know, obsessed with law and order and the rule of law and caring more about rules and process than they care about outcomes. It's conceivable that that is a uniquely American thing and not as widespread, you know, in other parts of the world. On the other hand, you know, there's no reason to believe that, you know, humanitarianism or, or, you know, is any more or less of a factor in the U.S. than it is elsewhere, right? So certain, certain of these things, I think, will travel over borders more than others. And Ramirez is looking at the role of principles and racism in another area where they are linked, support for free speech or hate speech. What I'm doing now is really looking at free speech, political tolerance, really trying to get at this question of how much of people's support for free speech, particularly supporters on the right, how much of that is, is driven by a desire just to be able to say whatever offensive, nasty thing that they want to say versus how much of it is actual uh, you know, political principles. And so I just got uh, CCS data from 2020 that that starts to look at this and actually find a lot of support for people that value self-autonomy are actually really supportive of, of sort of prohibiting hate speech regulations. And so there is, you know, a dominant place for for principles in people's support for free speech. But there's also a lot of uh, correlation between different racial attitude measures that I included, social dominance orientation and so forth. So that's that's the new project. There's a lot more to learn. On today's topics, you can listen to the Xenophobia episode with historian Erica Lee from the Democracy Group Network podcast, Democracy in Danger, or on our own prior Science of Politics episodes, Is White Identity Causing an Immigration Backlash with Ashley Jardina and Eric Kaufman, or Anti-Immigration Politics is California's Past, the Republicans' Future, with Iris Wee and Joshua Zinger. 
The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Mark Ramirez and Matthew Wright for joining me. Please check out Ignored Racism and Immigration in the American Ethos, and then listen in next time. Mm-hmm.